Welcome to Uptown Chats, a podcast where we share stories about environmental justice by and for everyday people. I'm your co-host, Jaren. And I'm your other co-host, Lonnie. And we both work at WEACT for environmental justice. Lonnie, what do we do here at WEACT? Glad you asked. WEACT's mission is to build healthy communities by ensuring that people of color and or low-income residents participate meaningfully in the creation of sound and fair environmental health and protection policies and practices. That's right. And today we're celebrating women of color specifically and their role in the environmental justice movement with the help of one of our environmental health interns, Gabriella Lebron. Gabriella will provide us with a bit of a background and a historical lens about the role of women of color in the environmental justice movement. And then we'll transition to some interviews with some great women of color and some interviews with them. And here's Gabriella. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Gabriella. We uh, appreciate you being on the show today and uh, Lonnie and I are going to take a step back to give a little bit more space for the voices of women of color in the work that we do and just in the movement in general. So uh, with that, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to you to introduce yourself, tell the folks who you are, and then just launch right into what you have to share with us today. Hi, I'm Gabrielle Lebron. I'm an intern here with WEACT. Um, I work with Jaren specifically. I'm an environmental studies major at Skidmore College up in Saratoga Springs, New York. Um, and so how I got my start with the environmental justice movement was in a class that I took in high school called Climate Justice, and where primarily we focused on Hurricane Katrina and other issues in New York City. And this was my first exposure to these sort of issues and how a lot of environmental issues are deeply systemic. And especially studying environmental justice movement, or excuse me, environmental injustices in New York City, I saw a lot of my my community reflected in what we were learning, specifically in the Bronx, studying the heat index disparities and also the asthma disparities. I saw a lot of myself and my, my peers reflected in those statistics. And so, again, this opened up a door of passion and curiosity within me for this movement. But prior to this class, I was very regretfully unaware of how prominent these issues were and how if you don't necessarily learn about them in a classroom setting, or at least at at that age, at the age of 16, I probably wouldn't have learned about it otherwise. And it just so happened in that class, my teacher talked about WEACT as well. And so that's how I learned about WEACT. So yeah, so now I'm in my second year of studying um, in college. I learn about these issues every day. And... I'm continuing to be curious and passionate about these issues. And so today, um, I did a bit of research on three different generations of women of color in the environmental justice movement, and I'm here to talk about them a little bit. So first, I'm going to talk about Dion Ferris. She's a more experienced member of the community. And one of her larger accomplishments within the environmental justice movement was being named the first African-American president of the Institute for Sustainable Communities. She was named in 2020. The Institute for Sustainable Communities is a nonprofit international organization with a mission to implement equitable and sustainable climate change mitigation and solutions. She got her start in the environmental justice movement when she was in law school. So she took an environmental law course and she saw a lot of similarities and parallels between what she was learning um, and her life at home. And so specifically, she noticed that cases regarding air quality were more specific to her life experiences. She also noticed from this class that her family lived in an environmental justice community. She was inspired to join the budding environmental law community. Her first job outside of law school was with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. 
Following on, I'm going to talk about Leah Thomas, and she's more in the middle stages of her activism. So currently, she's an author, and she describes herself as an eco-communicator. Her presence online is through an Instagram page and a blog called Intersectional Environmentalist. In May of 2020, her page picked up after she created a post stressing the importance of the intersection of social and environmental justice. So her page, Intersectional Environmentalist, does this currently, and where they spread information on the intersections of these two movements, the social and environmental justice movement, and the importance of seeing both aspects to both movements. She has also authored The Intersectional Environmentalist, How to Dismantle Systems of Oppression to Protect People and the Planet, which, quote, serves, to, serves as an introduction to the intersection between environmentalism, racism, and privilege. She is also the founder of an eco-lifestyle blog called Green Girl Leah. Furthermore, she's been recognized on media publications such as CNN, NBC, Vogue, and the list goes on. And lastly, for the more younger crowd of the environmental justice movement, I'm going to shine a light on a Mariana Copney, or she goes by Mari, also goes by Little Miss Flint. So now she's 14 years old, but she rose to the spotlight when she wrote a letter to then-President Barack Obama. She was eight when she wrote this letter that gained a lot of public attention. She wrote about the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. And shortly after, President Obama visited Michigan, Flint, Michigan, and authorized $100 million to help resolve this crisis. Huge accomplishment for being eight years old, definitely. In 2017, she was a national youth ambassador of the Women's March on Washington. And currently, she's continuing to stay involved with local leadership positions in her community. Fun fact, she plans to run for president in 2024. So it's interesting to think that a lot of the leading members of this community get involved because of problems within their own community. Dion Ferris, for instance, saw parallels between her life and what she was learning in her classes. And Mariana Copney, or Little Miss Flint, wrote, beca- wrote to the president because the problems were so bad in her community that she wanted to send a message herself. And so, and within myself within the class that I took, Climate Justice, I saw a lot of really stark parallels and similarities between what I was learning and my own life. And I think a lot of members of this community get involved because they see themselves reflected through what they're learning about environmental justice and injustices. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for that recap and overview of some really prominent women of color in the environmental justice movement. I think a lot of people take the contributions of women of color for granted and as is evidenced by these three people you've highlighted so much of the progress that we've seen in environmental justice we have to thank women of color for and even our own executive director peggy shepherd is an important piece of that so with your context in mind we're going to go ahead and transition into a couple of interviews that we've done with Again, multiple generations of women of color in the environmental justice movement. Lonnie, do you want to say a little bit about who those three people are? Yeah, we've got Christy Drutman, a.k.a. Brown Girl Green, WEACT's very own Dana Johnson, and Vernice Miller-Travis, co-founder of WEACT. That's right. Let's uh, roll those interviews. Hi, 
Hi everyone, my name is Christy Drutman, otherwise known as Brown Girl Green. I'm an environmental media host, educator, uh, content creator, public speaker, uh, someone who really cares about building bridges when it comes to climate communication and storytelling uh, to move forward and promote environmental justice. I'm also the co-founder of the Green Jobs Board, which is a platform helping folks get jobs on climate. Uh, well, thank you for that introduction. And, you know, to, to continue that, I want to hear a little bit more about your story and how you got into the environmental justice movement. So growing up, I wasn't really exposed as much to understanding how my life was connected to environmental justice. I did grow up near a freeway um, and I did have a lower lung capacity. And it was funny because I remember when I was in like seventh grade there was a science experiment that tested kids who like had parents who were smokers versus non-smokers and tested their lung capacity and you had to blow into the little balloon and it was crazy because I blew into the balloon and they were like are your parents smokers and I was like no my parents are not smokers and I and I didn't understand why I had such tiny lungs and you know not the most athletic but then I kind of put two and two together and it was like oh I grew up right next to a freeway and it wasn't until I was like way older that I realized like oh that was me breathing in pollutants and you know that is like an issue and I didn't really realize that growing up and it pieced those things together and as I got deeper you know into high school and like developed interest in environmental issues it really came with a human rights perspective I was really passionate about um the environment the environment because I wanted to see how could improving the environment for people actually help people's lives be better? So I came from it from more of that perspective than like, oh, protecting, you know, wild forests or things like that. Um, it was always about people, even from a young age. And so I felt like that was kind of the foundations of like my journey of exploring and caring about environmental justice. And then when I went to UC Berkeley, you know, I kind of got thrown in, thrown into understanding environmental justice issues that were impacting communities that I was not a part of. So I learned a lot about um, hydraulic fracturing or fracking and how that was impacting um, farm farming communities in the Central Valley in California. And I was learning about, you know, how communities were forming coalitions all across the state of California to get fracking ban because it was poisoning people's water supply and things like that. And it just astounded me at that age when I was in university starting to learn about these things and then actually meeting people being impacted by these issues. And I just felt very compelled to want to do something about it. And so, yeah, from a, right off the bat, when I started university, I was joining coalitions around di divesting from fossil fuels and, you know, fighting against extractive industries um, and joining a lot of coalition movement building that way. But then, yeah, I got burnt out from that. <laughs> um, I, and we can talk about, you know, mental health later in this episode. But, you know, I got burnt out because it was just very much like I was going all in. But it was also like at the same time, I didn't feel like I had a roadmap of how I fit in mm -hmm. to the, you know, social change or environmental justice ecosystem. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how I fit into anything. And so it was just kind of this journey. You know, I took a break from doing more of like the grassroots direct action kind of activism stuff um, to kind of like introspecting what was my role within the movement. And during that time, as I did that introspection, I discovered my passion and love for um, storytelling and mm -hmm. media and creativity. And, you know, I was going on social media and seeing all these like, you know, content creators and bloggers and all this stuff. And, you know, they were making such big impacts, 
maybe selling things that weren't always the best for the environment or spreading messages that, you know, were really influencing people's lives. And I was like, you know, why is that not existent for the environmental justice space? Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, like I have this knowledge and this wherewithal to know how to use things like blogs and writing and video creation um, and podcasting. Why don't I apply that and educate people about the issues I was seeing both like, you know, locally, like in the Bay Area at the time and then like nationally and like internationally because I started from my youth activism was like that expanded not just locally and went regionally, nationally and then internationally when I got involved, you know, with the UN climate talks and all this stuff. Um, and this was bef way before I started Brown Girl Green. So I was seeing all these pieces and I was like, okay, how can I create a medium to share what I'm learning about these powerful movements, the histories of amazing leaders who have led environmental justice in the past, current leadership and movements of environmental justice and what the movement could look like in the future. And I just felt like there was no outlets of media talking about that. Mm -hmm. Like there was here and there, but it was very much in academia. It was very much maybe in very like insular circles um, because organizations maybe didn't have the resources to produce their own media at the time. And so I was like, I'm just going to put it out there. And that was where Brown Girl Green kind of emerged. It was just very much this idea of being really passionate about seeing especially marginalized voices and communities not being represented or having their stories told, um, despite being the most extracted from mm -hmm. and feeling like there needed to be a platform to talk about some of that, you know, while also educating people about what was going on with the climate crisis, but making sure that a lot of those voices were also being included in that. Um, at the same time. And that's where I learned, like, that is my role. That is, like, what I want to contribute to the environmental justice movement is this media platform and using my strengths as a storyteller and a creative um, to be that bridge builder for those stories. Yeah. I appreciate, you know, your experience as a storyteller coming and joining with us today and telling us this aspect of your story and, you know, how you've entered into the environmental justice movement. And I think it's interesting that moment that you were talking about as a kid with the, the yeah. breathing test and, you know, this trajectory that, that followed and considering, you know, we're focusing on women of color and EJ in this yeah. episode. Uh, I want to just quickly touch on what moment in that timeline yeah. that it was, it became clear to you that it was people of color, that it was yeah. women of color being yeah. impacted uh, by yeah. environmental justice issues because it sounds like it wasn't clear. It wasn't explained to you in that <laughs> no. moment of, of why yeah, why no. you specifically were being impacted. Yeah, and you no. were also not educated on that yeah. on that disproportionate impact. Right, as well. right. And I think, you know, that brings up even more complex questions around racial privilege and economic privilege, right? Like, I didn't... It's interesting because, like, I grew up, like, you know, I would say I grew up pretty, like, middle class. I didn't grow up, like, low income. And so I think it was an interesting thing where, like, I was living in this, like, what was considered, like, you know, a nice neighborhood in terms of, like, school districts and things like that. And so, like, by the numbers from a class perspective, I didn't view it as, like, that, you know what I mean? Of like, oh, I'm being marginalized or I'm being like, oh, like I'm dealing with all these issues. But then learn like there was health impacts that I faced because of specifically like, you know, my neighborhood is an un unincorporated like area actually within 
the community I was in. And I didn't even know there was unincorporated censuses until I got older. And I was like, oh, this is why we don't even have proper sewage. And like, mm. we don't have even like proper streetlights in our neighborhood because we're this weird little island pocket within this bigger community where you see a, there was a lot of wealth and privilege like near us you know what i mean so i never viewed it as like i was a part of like an environmental justice community or like what people maybe associate with those things but then as i got older i was like no like those things happened to me and like that is an environmental justice issue and i think over time i i was like learning these layers and i started to learn even more that like especially for women of color like in all aspects, not just environmental justice, but just like health issues and different things you face. It's so hard to like speak up or advocate for yourself or like talk about the things you were exposed to or the things like you were considering or the things you thought were messed up. It takes a long time to build that voice. And I think that that's a big part of like this interesting thing where it's like, yeah, they thought my lung capacity was low. It's weird. But in my head, I was like, oh, but I have access to all these resources, all these things. Mm-hmm. And both of those things can coexist, right? Like people can live in an area that's very polluted and also maybe have their own sets of like privileges and access. Like I'm an Asian American woman. I have access and proximity to whiteness. I have all these things, right? But it's like I've also been exposed to a lot of harms in the environmental fields. I've been, you know, experienced my own sets of microaggressions, all these things. Mm-hmm. So like, it's an interesting question around where do women of color lie on the spectrum? Because we all have like our own sets of like privileges and also marginalized identities, right? Within even that and how we approach these issues. So I always like to name that, right? I always like to name that like, you know, I do have my own sets of like class and racial privilege even as being a woman of color mm-hmm. but I've also like faced my own sense of like you know oppression and marginalization in my own ways and then looking back on my life realized there was these things where I was like wait that's actually pretty messed up and I didn't really piece that together and I kind of was like oh but you had all these other things so that doesn't really count you know what I mean mm-hmm. and so it's funny it's like you're so quick to being like okay I don't need to advocate over myself because you have all these other things going for you yeah that's a common story like i have other women of color friends where it's like oh well you didn't have to immigrate from x country you're fine you know what i mean it's like okay it might not be great in this neighborhood but like at least you're not back in the you know back there like in the philippines the barangay you know you know or whatever it's like you don't have to grow up that way so it's like what are you complaining about you know what i mean anyways i know that was a bit complex but it's it's kind of a big part of it we love complexity here yeah because it gives us a lot to dig into because you know, you're you're absolutely right in terms of there's a wide range of understanding privilege within being, you know, being being a person of color yeah. myself as well. And also kind of identifying a little bit with that upper middle class upbringing. I'm yeah. like, what am I complaining about for a lot of things? But when you kind of go through this, <laughs> when you present yourself to the world yeah. and society, you may not be viewed the way that you think that you yes. should be viewed. Right. Yes. Um, yes. And sometimes you're not as visible. And I think it's great that you have a platform that tell stories of a variety of voices. So I guess I want to kind of ask, why do you think it's important for more women of color to get involved in the environmental justice movement? Because of the complexity, because of the diversity of experiences and communities we come up, we, we are a part of, I mean, they keep saying with the recommendations from the IPCC report that like adaptation and resilience is very context and community specific. And we know that women are at the core of 
implementing a lot of adaptation strategies, especially in the global south. But, you know, even here in the U.S., when we think about family dynamics and all this stuff, like women are doing tons of like emotional labor and childcare and all these things It usually, you know, tends to fall on women. And so I think when we're talking about environmental justice, we have to think about all of these layers that women of color have to deal with and have to navigate through just living in the society we live in today, because most of the time they're going to be put in a more vulnerable position, not able to adapt or accommodate to these changes as quickly as people who don't identify as a woman of color. And so I think it's important that those voices are brought up because it is going to end up being so context specific. And the more women of color you have who come from diverse backgrounds, it will resonate with someone. And I think that is how we create the blueprint for action, for people to feel seen, to build community. Um, And that's how movements get built. And so I think it's really important that those voices get brought in the room to be able to connect those dots for people. Absolutely. I I just kind of want to ask a quick question here off that is like, what kind of stories do you hear? What kind of, what are you hearing from these uh, storytelling and the voices that you? Yeah. I mean, I just had an incredible uh, recording of my podcast earlier this morning with an amazing woman named um, Chef Selassie and she's from Ghana. And her whole story right now is about Um, how to use food as a medium to talk about climate justice. And her whole thing is that she uses culinary expertise to be able to show people that you can infuse Ghanaian culture with being more plant-based or plant-forward, right? And talking about how, like, food is not just this thing that you know, exists for just pleasure. It's also a tool for conversation, for activism, for discussion, and it's also, like, discussing things like food security and thinking about a changing climate, right? And using it as a way to be able to reach people to think about, okay, if I live in this specific context, I'm probably going to need to eat more of X, Y, and Z type of food because these other types of foods are not going to be as readily available in the next couple of decades due to droughts and things like that. And so it's interesting, like she was bringing that up. and And I thought that was just a perfect example of like, having someone who talked about the specific issues faced in a place like Ghana and how food is used as like, you know, a cultural teaching tool. And I think those kind of stories just excite me because I'm like, you would never hear something like that. You know what I mean? And like mainstream media where it's like, you're kind of connecting dots around unconventional stories that are full of solutions. I think a big part of your question that I want to answer is, A big thing that I think distracts us is a lot of this like eco-anxiety and doom and gloom narrative that neglects so much of how people, especially people in the global south, are currently adapting to the climate crisis right now. And I think a lot of women of color are at the forefront of adaptation efforts, not out of a space of like policy or the IPCC report. They're doing it for survival, right? And they're doing it well. They're figuring it out and like because they have to, they don't have a choice. And I think there's so much we could be like learning from those stories and learning how to build those case studies and that repertoire of information that again, like you can learn from best practices, right? Mm -hmm. And you learn more and more and like hopefully you can apply that to your local context or maybe not, you pick and choose. But there just needs to be more information, more data, more stories that are put out there in order for that kind of conversation to even be happening. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. You okay. know, the, the mainstream <laughs> the mainstream media. Like, what am I even saying right now? <laughs> no, it <laughs> feels that way a lot. Okay, great. I'm glad. I'm glad it all pieced together. It's a lot. Okay. It did. The mainstream media. You know, it is very doom and gloom, right? That's kind of all you hear, especially from the climate and environmental justice space, uh, is just like all of the negative. But if we hear about some of the things that, how people are adapting, what their stories are, where they're coming from, it it, it really adds, it really enriches the the conversation. And I think it's great that storytelling can be a way to make the complexity a little easier to yes. to digest because it's all very complex issues you just explain right very eloquently how the food connection right. to 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 drought uh to climate right. to economic and social injustice <laughs> right. right like there's so many things that are connected and i think storytelling is a great way to to make that a little easier to understand yeah exactly and i just and i just feel like yeah, like the, the statistics are just that like women are estimated to be, you know, 80% of, you know, who's going to be displaced by climate change, most likely to face domestic violence, most likely to deal with um, having to um, deal with sexual violence and things like that. And so I think these stories are not even just a nice to have. It's like survival. It's giving people a blueprint to learn how to survive and know what is to expect so they can prepare themselves and their families, right? And like women's education is so critical to critical for that, especially in the global South. And so I view these stories as not just about like feel good things. It's like also like hopefully people can learn and feel like their voice is being heard, you know? Because there's so much pain there of so many communities feeling just like not heard when it comes to these issues. And so being able to create a platform that shares that in a way that feels joyful and not caught in the negativity for me, that just feels like it is moving the needle forward in some way, some way, somehow. With the hopes that those stories reach legislators, policymakers and uh, people who can make decisions to, to make change. To really think about, really think about the impacts and the timeliness of the decisions that need to be made. My name is Dana Johnson. I serve as Senior Director of Strategy and Federal Policy with WEAC for Environmental Justice. A really long way of saying that um, I advocate at the federal level for communities across the country um, in pursuing like equitable legislation or regulatory practices um, or even money um, that will go to towards addressing environmental injustice in communities across the country. Love that. How did you get into the environmental justice movement? Yeah, so I would say that EJ was not intentional for me. Um, I went to school, quite frankly, for marketing um, for my undergrad degree, and I spent about 15 years working in client service communications firms, but it was always in a space of like helping people, supporting people. So I did you know, like five years around like healthcare um, comms. And so heart attack and stroke prevention. And I did some work around um, like home safety. So fire alarm and carbon monoxide. And then I went to work for the comms firm that really was the most impactful in my life. I was the first employee for this company founded by a woman who actually was BET's very first PR person. And she was Oprah's the Oprah Winfrey Show's very first PR person and went out and started her own thing. And I got to do amazing things. So, you know, we had 
hotels as our clients. So how do you make a hotel experience, a vacation experience accessible for more LBGTQ folks? That was that work. The National Black MBA Association, um, the National Association of Black Accountants were my clients. So how do you get more people of color on corporate boards? How do you get them in executive positions? And then the Nielsen Company was a client. And that was all about getting black people, Latinx people, and Asian folks to participate in the census because Nielsen used that data to make money. Mm -hmm. But it was really about ensuring that people knew they mattered. And so I did that for 15 years, and then I decided that I was going to go to grad school and get an MBA because operations was important to me. Um, If you say you want to be a $10 million organization or in the work that we do, if you say you want to revolutionize communities so that they're healthy places, you can't do that if the inside of your organization does not operate efficiently and effectively. So I really thought I was going to be like a COO when I grew up, Mm -hmm. but came to Washington, D.C., took an executive director job, didn't do that. I did that for maybe like a year and a half, and then I went to work with someone in a consulting capacity who was working with the Climate Action Campaign, and they were interested in connecting with African-American women, youth, and the faith community around climate action. And I thought I would just do that for five minutes Mm -hmm. (laughs) and ended up meeting someone that I knew in Chicago who lived here in Washington, D.C. And she was coming back to work at WEACT and asked me if I would join her in a comms capacity. So I can admit I didn't intend to stay long, but that's how I got into EJ. Wow. That's like a roundabout way to get to EJ, but also kind of direct in, 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 a, in an odd way. Very, yeah, a bunch of different circles around, but I think at the heart of it, the string is, if I think about my ethos, everyone gets to live in peace and safety without fear. So it's mm-hmm. if you're going on vacation, if you're sitting in your house and you want to breathe clean air, if you want to ascend to the C-suite in an organization, you have the right to do it and there should be no barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, in in your getting to that place. I love that. And I love how that transcends, even outside of the strict, you know, very kind of defined environmental justice movement. It, it kind of should be sprinkled out through all aspects of society. And I also like that you touched on your experience in the health space and you know, the, the pull from the, the climate action piece of it. I feel like a lot of people are pulled into the environmental justice movement through one of those two ways, either through their connection to health, thinking about health and how it impacts people, or through thinking about the climate and really big picture issues like climate change. I think, and it seems like both of those worked on you, so you had yeah. all the forces conspired to bring you here. They did. But you, we really do need all kinds of folks to come into the space. Like, you need the finance person, you need the comms person, you need the, you know, operations person, you need somebody who's strategic. We just can't be out here randomly pulling out our picket signs and, you know, throwing up our black power fist. We have to be thoughtful and strategic in how we do it. And so I think the movement benefits from diversity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And speaking of that diversity, and you talked a lot about you know, equity in your journey as well has been important in like working with different groups of people. Um, but, you know, as a woman of color yourself, uh, how has your lived experience uh, influenced the environmental justice movement? Oh, wow. That's powerful. Um, my lived experience. So I think for me, I don't necessarily bring 
faith into this. And I'm probably in a space of not crises right now, but, you know, sometimes faith and what you see in the real world don't make a whole lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. But that notion of we all are equal, we all have the same breath of life in us, we all are wonderfully made, we're all created, and we all get access to the benefits or the blessings that come along with that, I think a part of my my lived experience, like I'm just as smart, I'm just as hot, mm-hmm. you know, I, I bring just as much value to this world, to this planet, and how dare anyone decide that I shouldn't be able to reap the full benefits of being on the earth uh, or being in, you know, in this space. And so I think that probably influences a lot of what I do in environmental justice. And I think the other thing that I think about too is my lived experience. I'm, I'm probably in a weird generation, right? So like my parents are boomers and there's a certain amount of, I'm Gen X, woo-woo for the Gen Xers. (laughs) But there is a certain amount of like, you know, structure and process and protocol in how I think Gen Xers live. But then we also raised like this generation of folks who are like resisting, you know, structure and process and protocol and really are more, you know, holistically focused on, you know, like parity and equity and, you know, we can all get to the space together. Like even sometimes in the work environment, like when people do a project together, like I'm like, why are we doing like group projects, group think? But I get the whole, like we all gonna contribute to something great. So I feel like I sit in a, in a, in a weird space of that. And um, I think that this idea of value And I can admit, like in even younger periods of my life, especially academically, not necessarily feeling like, you know, I was as smart or I had, you know, the best training or the best resources to be at the table and to go into spaces. And, you know, especially when I went to college, I was like, these folks ain't no smarter than me. (laughs) Like, I am just as smart. Um, I bring just as much. And so I think when I think about environmental justice, because that's about sitting at a table and deciding what happens in your community, what happens in your life, I think that experience of feeling like, should I be at this table versus deciding for myself, I'm going to be at this table, even if I'm not always comfortable with it, is probably what I bring to EJ. That's great. So kind of like grappling with that imposter syndrome. Like, should I even be here? Should I even be here, right? And what are all the things that I should be doing to prepare myself to prove that I should be here? Mm -hmm. Which goes back to the first thing that I said of like, just the fact that I'm on the planet makes me a candidate to be at the table. Mm -hmm. I think that's a beautiful statement. And it's interesting how you describe being a Jin. Gen Xer, because that is exactly how my mother describes being a Gen Xer in a lot of ways of just like, you know, when she comes to that workplace, like, why are we doing this all together? Like, why is this a group thing? I don't understand what's happening. Or, you know, I like to see Gen X as like the people who like to be in the background, but still want to do something, but still want to contribute. We are in the background. And I don't I don't know. Like, I really think about that a lot. How did we get in the background? But the folks running your organizations right now? 
are the Gen Xers. Like, we ready to retire, but we are running things right now. And I think, yeah, a part of that probably is, like, we are comfortable to let other people shine while we just do. Yeah. Yeah. Was there a specific moment where you, the first time you really recall having this debate in your head of, should I be at this table? Is, is there a clear moment that comes to your mind when you think back and think about that time where that really dawned on you that that was something that was important to you and that, that it was something that, that needed to, to happen, that you needed to take that space and, and to be at the table for something that was important to you in that way? Yeah, that's, wow. Like, I can vividly see it in my head, and it goes back to being young. So, okay. so in Chicago, when you are getting ready to go to high school, you, if you don't go to your neighborhood high school, you have to take tests. And I don't know what they call it today, but you know, you take tests to go to the school that you want to go to. And Whitney Young, Lynn Bloom, um, and the college, the, the high school that I went to, High Park, you had to take the test for it. But like Whitney Young was the top school. And I remember thinking like, and my father was driving my my friend Stephanie and I to actually take the test. And I was like, I don't even know. Like, why am I going to take this test? I don't really like math. I don't really do that well in math. And, like, this is just a waste of time. And, and I vividly remember sitting in the backseat of that car thinking, like, he taking me to something that I don't really feel like I'm qualified to be at. And yeah, that probably was like 12, 13 years old Mm -hmm. that, you know, decades later, you still have to fight against that. Like, I can see that very vividly, but that was the first time that I remember thinking, like, I shouldn't be here. Yeah. Was there a moment in that in that time, like when you're going to take the test that you realize, like, no, like, I just I need to do this because this is going to step me up or is it a hindsight thing where after you took the test you're like no I'm glad that I did this because xyz or is it years later that you finally realize oh this was an important an important thing yeah I I would say it probably was a years later experience for me um and I remember when I first went away to college I went to Grambling and that felt comfortable that felt safe to me you know to be a part of a HBCU and Financially, like my family just didn't have it figured out. So I ended up having to come back to Chicago. And I just applied to all the colleges and the universities there. And the first one that, you know, sent me an acceptance letter was where I ended up going. So I went to Roosevelt University. And I remember like getting ready to start classes and thinking like, even know like these kids are coming from the North Shore they're coming from like you know the Northwest suburbs where they got money like their schools are better um, and I don't know if I will be able to compete and I remember sitting in my first class think, and you know like being a part of the conversation and hearing the conversation and I was like they don't have anything on me I could do this like mm-hmm. they are not smarter than me thank you for sharing that why do you think it's important for more women of color to get involved in the environmental justice movement? Yeah, so in thinking about that question, I mean, I can answer it from the, the very direct space that we work in. So we know that race is more than income, is more of a, ter- a determinant in if you'll be exposed to some sort of environmental injustice. And so having women of color because our communities are impacted, you know, makes sense. 
But when I think about who I see in the movement, when I think about who is most nurturing and moved by injustice, I do think that women of color automatically show up in those spaces. Um, And as a black woman, I can speak for black women, I feel like we show up in those spaces. We are going to care for you. We are going to nurture you. We're going to stand in the gap for you. We will be angry for you. And so I feel like when you look at who's out in a protest, you know, when you look at some of the Black Lives Matter actions that we saw here in Washington, D.C. during the Trump administration, I felt like women of color were leading um, in those spaces. And I think it's it's a part of of who we are. Um, I think sometimes like we carry a bigger burden than we should carry. Personally, like from a Gen X perspective, I feel like my friends and I carry democracy on our backs. Like we sit in that space of um, being really close to generations of folks who thought like voting was important. It was an important part for us to participate in that process. Like I grew up in a home with my great grandmother, my grandmother, my mother, my father, my uncles, whatever. So I have like four, I'm the fourth in a generation of people. And my great grandmother was born in 1899 and had siblings who were slaves. And so like I see the importance of participating in the process that I feel like sometimes the value proposition isn't there for generations behind me. Like they just don't see it. And so I see for me, the environmental justice movement will not come to fruition if people are disempowered. And so as a woman, as a black woman, like I carry that, I feel like every day in my life. And so I don't know if I think it's important for women of color to, to participate in the movement, but I think it's something that we naturally gravitate to because we we carry injustice with us and a desire to see it resolved. So many, so many things that could be, you know, followed up on what you said. But one thing I want to kind of ask, just kind of uh, for your your candid responses, do you feel like within the like the larger umbrella of environment and climate, do you think women of color are recognized as much as they should be, or as visible as they should be? I don't. I think that we do this work, as I mentioned, like naturally out of passion, out of our heart, out of a sense of what we believe to be right or wrong. Um, And I think that in the, you know, conservation and the environmental, even quite frankly, here in Washington, D.C., in the environmental justice movement, we see the same conflict um, between that we saw with the feminist movement, where You have white women who speak for us, who, you know, sit at tables and feel very comfortable to talk about things that um, are very much a women of color issue. Like women, black women have really led in this movement and to have, you know, women who aren't women of color or people of color sit at tables and get resources for their organizations or have positions within 
the you know administration at a time when environmental justice is at a at a place of heightened awareness and notoriety is challenging for me and i think we saw that with the feminist movement which is why the womanist movement kind of broke off from it um but i don't think that women of color get our full recognition across the board in terms of justice and other other advocacy spaces absolutely thank you so much for unpacking a lot of that for us i feel like this is exactly why we wanted to talk to you about this i feel like you have a lot of important insights and and valuable experience to offer here where do you see the movement going in the next 15 to 20 years the environmental justice movement right so i think you know environmental justice is one of those things where like we want to solve the problem like we shouldn't see our movement grow like it shouldn't get bigger we should solve the problem but i will admit that we are at a space nationally, culturally, politically, that sometimes I am not convinced that we won't go over the ledge as a society, if you will. Like we are at a real place right now where we can address injustice. But if you look at what happened in the wake of the 2020 election, we saw 400 plus voter suppression bills passed like in that first couple of months. Mm -hmm. So we see ourselves in this real battle for power, battle for resources, that my hope is we see that there is space and a place for everyone, and that as great as you all are, there won't even be a need for this podcast anymore. Because we have done the work to ensure that everyone gets to live in peace and safety without fear in a clean environment. Hi, this is Pamela from We Act. Just want to invite you to our April monthly membership meeting where we're going to be talking about green jobs and our green workforce development team. We're also going to be talking to our new director for environmental health about our Beauty Inside Out campaign. We're going to be at the Prince Hall Lodge at 454 West 155th Street. April 8th, we start at 10 o'clock sharp and we end at 12. Looking forward to seeing you there. My name is Vernice Miller-Travis. I am a Harlem native, I'm born in Harlem Hospital, raised in central Harlem and Delano Village, now mysteriously called Savoy Arms. Don't, don't get me to talking about that. That's a whole nother podcast. And lived in New York uh, most of my life until I uh, got married and moved to Maryland, where I live now in Prince George's County, Maryland, just east of Washington, D.C. You know, I grew up in Harlem in the 60s, which was a magnificent, glorious time to, uh, to be a Harlemite and miss it very much. Um, my hairdresser is still in Harlem or still in New York. So, you know, got to keep the important relationships um, maintained, right? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for that. Yeah, I, you know, I can only imagine what it was like being being in Harlem in the 60s. I wish we could do a little time travel and go back and see that. But we'll do our best hearing it through your words and, and through your experience. Lana, do you want to hit us with that first question? How did you get into the environmental justice movement? Sure. So I went to, to college at uh, Barnard College and the School of General Studies at Columbia University, which is just uh, at the southernmost edge of West Harlem, right? So for me, West Harlem starts on 110th Street um, and goes from 110th Street to 155th Street. And everything in between on the west side and the west side, you know, some people differ about it, but it could be Morningside Avenue, it could be Morningside Park. But, you know, from there to the Hudson River is um, is West Harlem. Um, so I'm, you know, going to college in, in, in this community. And I, you know, I spent a lot of time there and I was very politically active. And one of the things I was politically active in, in addition to the anti-apartheid movement and the divestment movement, was an effort and a campaign, a national campaign to free some political prisoners in North Carolina that were known as the Wilmington Ten. And some of them were were ministers, particularly Reverend Ben Chavis, was a minister of the United Church of Christ. And United Church of Christ is a very old, very small Protestant denomination. It's the remnant of the church established by the pilgrims. And Ben was in Wilmington, North Carolina, organizing with folks down there to get black folks to vote. Wilmington was a very, very, very segregated city and black folks were in a very disempowered position. And so he and some other folks were organizing to get people to vote. And the city, the local government accused them of fomenting uh, efforts to start a race riot. They were organizing to get people to vote and convicted them and put them in prison. And so Ben spent four years in prison in North Carolina, and there was a, a national campaign to get him out. And so I was part of that national campaign as a college student. And a classmate of mine who had graduated and went to, um, went to I think she went to UNC Chapel Hill for graduate school. She said to me one day, you know, Ben Chavis is at Union Theological Seminary, right? So if you know West Harlem, right? So there's Barnard College. Across the street from Barnard College is Union Theological Seminary. Across the street from Union Theological Seminary is Riverside Church, which was my church for 28 years. So it's a really tight community. And I live three blocks away um, up the street. And so I said to her, that's not possible. If Ben Chavis was up here, of course I would see him. And she said, I'm telling you, he's doing his PhD at Union Theological. And I'm like, okay. So I started scouring the streets every day, walking from my apartment on Claremont Avenue to campus, right? A whole four blocks. And I am scouring the streets, right? Sometimes I'm walking up Claremont Avenue. Sometimes I'm walking Broadway, you know, but I'm looking for this man. And sure enough, one day I ran into him right on the corner of my street on, um, on LaSalle Street and Claremont Avenue, right, which is just a block over from, from Broadway, a block and a half over from West 125th Street. And we stood there talking for like an hour in the bitter January cold. I invited him to come to campus and speak to the black students organizations, and he did, and I kept in contact with him. And I kept in contact with him for a number of years, and I would call him every six months and say, you know, you all need to hire me at the United Church of Christ Commission for Racial Justice because I am the future of the civil rights movement in the U.S., right? The hubris of a college student. And he would laugh and, you know, but would always talk to me. And so one day I called him, and this was after I graduated from college, and he said, 
And I said, you know, I'm still wanting to come and work at the United Church of Christ Commission for Racial Justice. And he said, well, we're getting ready to do this research project, um, special project on toxic injustice. And I don't know if you'd be interested, but why don't you come and meet our research director, Charles Lee? And if you and Charles hit it off, maybe you could come and join us. And so I went to meet Charles with the assumption that everyone I would encounter, the United Church of Christ is a predominantly white denomination, but it has a very strong black constituency within the United Church of Christ. So, but I'm assuming Charles is black and I get there and Charles is Chinese American. And I was like, okay, um, this is going to be interesting. And we talked and Charles and I hit it off immediately and he hired me and I was his research assistant and helped him to write and produce the report Toxic Waste and Race in the United States, which we published in April of 1987. And that was a groundbreaking piece of research, the first really peer-reviewed research report that looked at the correlation between race and the location of hazardous waste sites across the United States. And what we found was that race proved to be the most statistically significant indicator of where a hazardous waste site would be located. And so I worked at the commission from, I want to say, May or June of 1986 until uh, only for a year, right? It was a. It, it was the, the the project was off and running when I got there. It was my job to really bring it to to conclusion. And in the middle of that project, a friend of mine who I had worked on the Jesse Jackson campaign with in New York said to me, "You know, there are these folks in West Harlem, right there where you live, Bernice, who are organizing this independent Democratic club." And I said to her, you know, I have no interest in Democratic Party politics in New York. Oh, my God. Right. That's like asking me to join the mob. Um, and she said, no, I think you're really going to like these folks. And she just kept harping on it and harping on it. So one night I go to a meeting on 141st Street and Convent Avenues where the City College chapter of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity had a house right on the corner of 141st Street and Convent Avenue. And that's where the meeting was. And I walk in the door and there is Chuck Sutton and Peggy Shepard with the Democratic district leaders. Both Chuck and Peggy and I are the co-founders of WE Act. And I sit down. There are all these wonderful people. And they're talking about the North River sewage treatment plant. And I swear, I don't know if anybody else heard it, but there was a clanging in my head, you know, like I was up in the tower of Riverside Church with the big bells. And there was a clanging in my head that said, you know, that stuff you're working on every day, looking at communities all over the United States is happening right here in your backyard. It wasn't a hazardous waste site, but it certainly was the location of a, a waste facility in the middle of our community. And I joined the club that night, and the rest, as they say, is history. Um, Peggy, Chuck, and I were joined at, at the shoulders, at the hip, at the heart for a number of years, building not only West Harlem Independent Democrats, which was a Democratic club, but also the offshoot of that was We Act for Environmental Justice, or West Harlem Environmental Action. We used to try to do the work that we were doing, the community organizing under the auspices of West Harlem Independent Democrats, but it became, at least for Chuck and I, it became too compromising, right? I was a flaming radical, a flaming radical. Um, and I'm trying to work inside the Democratic Party, right? And everybody wasn't on the same page that we were on, let me just put it like that. And so we decided that we needed to build a nonprofit organization. And that is how we birthed the WE Act. And so 
Peggy and Chuck started West Harlem Independent Democrats, I want to say in 1985. I joined them in the fall of 86, and we launched WE Act in March of 1988. Wow, that is such both a good overview of your background, but also a, a surprising, not I guess not that surprising, quick history of WE Act. I mean, thank you so much for that overview. And I feel like there's so many things that you touched on that I wish we could spend so much more time unpacking. We need to circle back and give you your own episode at some point. I think that the, the listeners will demand it. Yeah, uh, I think we definitely need to do a founders episode. A because founders episode. That behind yes. the scenes kind of yes. rich history. Yes. It's needed. I would be happy to. Absolutely. But for the sake of time, I'll go ahead and transition to our next question, which you already spoke a lot to, but I want to give you a chance to unpack it a little bit more. And that question is, how has the lived experience of women of color influenced the environmental justice movement? You can both speak from your own perspective and just in general. Sure. You know, this is such a such an interesting and a good question. And I would just say that when I think about this question, I think about my mother, who was a nurse. Her name was Helen Lyles, and she was a nurse at Harlem Hospital, a pediatric nurse for 43 and a half years. She went to work there when she was 18. It was the only job she ever had. And one of the things I remember about my mother and her long-serving crew of colleagues at the hospital, particularly the nurses, was their early recognition that the AIDS epidemic had a pediatric layer to it that no one was talking about at the time when, you know, when AIDS, when HIV first became a public, uh, an acknowledged public health crisis. And of course, New York was one of the ground zero communities where HIV hit really hard. The focus was on gay white men exclusively. And there was no acknowledgement that there was anyone else suffering from HIV or from full-blown AIDS. But these babies kept showing up in the hospital. And because no one acknowledged them, there was no protocol for what to do or how to treat or how to help these babies, except to put them all in a room and keep them uh, sequestered away from everyone else and have as little interaction with them as possible. And I'm telling you this story because my mother and her colleagues at the hospital, the nurses, determined that there was no way in hell that they were going to leave those babies in a room by themselves as they were just fighting for their very lives without doing everything that they could to help them and to aid them, which of course meant holding them, right? And early in the epidemic, what we were all told is you can't touch somebody who's HIV positive, right? You can't kiss them. You can't hug them. You can't share a utensil. You can't eat on a plate or drink from a cup or go to the bathroom after they've gone to the bathroom. And so the paranoia around HIV was really extraordinary. Um, but it also carried over to these babies. And the reason I'm telling you this is that the nurses are overwhelmingly women. In fact, I don't remember a single male nurse. There might have been a male nurse at Harlem Hospital, but I don't ever remember encountering a male nurse. But the women just thought and felt that there was something that they needed to do that was beyond the wisdom of the doctors, beyond the wisdom of the public health protocols, beyond the wisdom, you know, nobody knew what to do. But the nurses figured out what to do for these children. And it is just an example to me, and I guess the reason that I sort of have a hypersensitivity to people suffering is because of my mother and because of watching her and watching her experience as a nurse. It just transmitted to me that when people are suffering, 
it is your obligation to do whatever you can do to bring their suffering to an end. And I have found that almost every woman that I have ever met in the EJ movement has felt the same way. They may not articulate it exactly the way that I do, but their responsiveness, their compassion, their compulsion to help end and alleviate people's suffering is, is the overriding force in their lives, right? And even if that's not what you came to do, that's not what I came to do. You know, that's not what I thought my life's path was going to be. But so many people were suffering in our community. So many people. And in so many other communities that I worked in across the country, the suffering was immense. And it wasn't just suffering. It was suffering and premature death, right? Which we were experiencing at an extraordinary level in our community. And no one was acknowledging what was happening to us. No one was talking about it. And when I think about it in retrospect, you know, one of the things I think about is that, you know, one of the things that every county in the United States has been required to do for decades is when someone dies, you have to list the cause of their death on their death certificate. So people in the New York City Health Department and the New York State Health Department knew that we were experiencing an explosion of death from asthma death from respiratory disease in our community. But nobody said anything and nobody did anything. And we uncovered that issue quite by mistake in, in doing some research with the Mailman School of Public Health, um, the Division of Environmental Health Sciences. But I just could not just let that roll, right? I had to do whatever it was that I needed to do to end that suffering. So that meant educating people, informing people, mobilizing people, knocking on doors. So, you know, if you ever see Peggy and I standing together and, and if you ever saw Peggy, Chuck and I standing together, none of us were tall. Chuck was probably the tallest and maybe Chuck was five, six, maybe. Right. But Peggy is five feet tall and I'm five, two. And when I tell you that we knocked on every door in every tenement, every public housing development, every brownstone, every apartment building. We knocked on every door in our community dozens of times, turning people out, informing people what was happening in our community. And we, I know I felt compelled to get people informed and to get them engaged. And sometimes that meant get them engaged in the political process to vote so that we could have people who represented us who would do something about the conditions in which we live. That is such a, you know, when I, when you asked me that question about me, it is, it is something that I did is something that Peggy did is something that so many of the senior citizens who lived in our community in West Harlem, who were the backbone of we act when it started, it is just, it was, what else would you do? Yeah, that's such a great answer. And honestly, everything you said is exactly why we're doing this episode. Uh, uh, So much of what you said also resonates with what we heard from Dana as well. And it's interesting to think about that, that overlap. And I love the the place that you're coming from. It's idea of, of community and nurture and, you know, combined with your activism and, you know, the civil rights movement that you had going on and then looking at groups of people who are marginalized and being ignored. Can you speak a little bit about like why is it important for women of color specifically to be involved in this movement as you kind of see it now? Well, I think so many of the things that we've learned in the EJ movement, science, policy, advocacy, journalism, 
narrative, right? How to tell a story, how to tell a story that's meaningful and can change behavior or enact good things or stop bad things. You know, women have a special way of moving in those places and women of color in particular, we also are really, really, really good at figuring out how to get some stuff done with zero budget. And when I tell you zero budget, we act had a budget of a grand total of $8,500 from 1986 when I joined until 1994 when we settled our lawsuit against the city of New York for operating the North River Sewage Treatment Plant as a public nuisance to the West Harlem community. And we settled that lawsuit for $1.1 million. But before that, we had a grand total income of $8,500. How do I know that? Because we got a $3,500 grant from uh, New York Community Trust, I think, and I got a $5,000 gift from uh, Amway. They did an ad and that featured me in Ebony Magazine. And they gave me $5,000 for that. And I put it in the, in the WEAC coffers. And I swear to you, we had an $8,500 budget. And so Peggy had a decent job. I had a decent job. Chuck worked for inner city broadcasting, WLIB radio, um, and inner city broadcasting. And, we made copies on the copy machines where we worked, right? We, you know, we did organizing from our desk where we worked. Thank, fortunately, we, the three of us had good jobs and those good jobs underwrote so much of the early work that, that we had did. But as women, it never occurred to Peggy and I that we couldn't do something because we didn't have any money, right? Because we were just used to that state of being, right? And I, and I think every community, every EJ community that I've ever been to, we certainly were not at the upper end of the economic strata in New York City by any stretch of the imagination. But I've been some places in this country and around the world where people had so much less than we had economically, so much less opportunity, so much less economic foundation, so much less of everything, except sometimes they had a lot more pollution. But nobody ever threw in the towel. Nobody ever said, I don't have a copy machine, so I can't organize people, right? That's such an interesting story. And I think that so much of what you said tells me two things. One, men need to step up their game and start contributing a little bit more to this environmental justice movement. And we need to give a little bit more credit to all the women of color who are who have mm-hmm. and are continuing to uplift this mm-hmm. movement. Absolutely. Where do you see the environmental justice movement going in the next 15 to 20 years? Mm, This is actually really a hard question. (laughs) I think we need better integration across the generations. I think we need better integration of the tools that we now have available to, to do research, to do advocacy, to do policy formulation, to do mobilization, mass mobilization. But everything cannot be done electronically. Sometimes you gotta get out in the street. And we can never, ever, ever give up that strategy of mass mobilization, right? And I, we did that for Black Lives Matter. Y'all did that for Black Lives Matter. Um, and we just, we have to marry all these other things that we've done to keep the work going forward. But also, I think we need to be self-sustaining. And that is where I think we, we are in the most precarious position. We have... 
levels of philanthropic funding that we could never have imagined. We could never have imagined the kinds of money some of us are able to raise these days. F foundations change. I used to work at the Ford Foundation. I can tell you, foundations change their mind. They get a new leader or a new program director and they decide they're gonna focus on something else. You cannot be dependent on that income stream from foundations, right? So we have to figure out a way to be self-sufficient. How do we provide our own financial support? Because one day the spigot is gonna close and we don't wanna have to close our doors as a result. So self-sufficiency, I think, is one of the most critical things that we need to think about. And we've been having this conversation for a very long time, but we've not, I don't think, done the things that we need to do to create financial independence. And, and we need that. You know, like all the green groups have endowments, right? Although the philanthropic sector continues to throw money at them, throw money at them. But they also have endowments. Should that stop, they have a source of income that can continue to keep their doors open and keep their staffs employed. We need that. And we need to be strategic about how we build that. So those are some of my ideas about what, what we need to do. And I guess lastly, it's difficult work, but sometimes you just have to stop and enjoy what we've done, right? So we had a, a beloved colleague, Damu Smith, who was the Southeast Regional Director for Greenpeace USA, though he was based in DC. And Damu believed that we just always had to have, that needed to be a party, right? And any gathering that we had, we had to have culture, music, spoken word, and dancing, and good food, right? And I think that's important, right? Because we are so serious about what we do, and this is serious business, we should be serious, but we also have to have time for joy and celebration that we are still here, that we are moving forward, um, and that many said that we would not last. It's like hip hop, right? <laughs> many said it was a fad. It's not a fad. It's the future of the environmental movement and the climate justice movement. All right, thanks for listening, and we're going to have Gabriella close us out. Yeah, so make sure to tune back in on the last Monday of every month for a new episode. Check out We Act on Facebook at We Act for EJ. That's W-E-A-C-T-F-O-R-E-J. Also on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at We Act for EJ, and that's W-E-A-C-T, the number four, EJ. And check out our website, weact.org, for more information about environmental justice. That's right. And if you have questions or comments about the show, you can also reach out to us directly by emailing podcast at weact.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at weact.org. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you.